Hello and welcome back to the show. Today we're talking about a women's health topic. We're talking about emotion-induced reactions of the pelvic floor and is it a thing? We're looking at a research paper that I did share in my December research spotlight email. So that goes out on the first of every month. If you're not on the email list and you want to receive these emails directly to your inbox with links to the research paper, join the email list. And the email list uh, link to join will be in like the description of this uh, episode. So whether you're on YouTube, whether you're on podcasting, you can scroll down and find the link. Now, before I get stuck into this, I want to talk about December because December is such an exciting month. Christmas is coming, which means everybody is dying for that time off. We're all getting tired. People are starting to slow down in their work, maybe tune out, get ready for a holiday. And then obviously New Year, we're preparing for the New Year. So I find this sometimes like a really odd time of year, which I think everybody does because one, I am wrapping up so much from 2024, but also preparing Sorry, I'm a year ahead. I'm wrapping up stuff from the 2023, so this year. So we've just completed like the mentorship program for 2023, but at the same time, opening up 2024 mentorship intake so that we can kick off things in January. Previously, I've I've not done an intake beginning January because everyone's on holidays, people are away. The kids are on holiday. So if you've got children and you're wanting to join in the mentorship, it's just not like the most ideal time. Maybe you're changing careers, you're getting new jobs. I don't know. Things just seem a little bit hectic in January. But at the same time, it's a really great time to get started on something and to be motivated for the year. And I find that um, previously I've done intakes in July, mid-year, but I've also done this year. I think it kicked off in March. So we sort of had like transition in the beginning of the year and then into um, March when everybody was ready. Um, But then it kind of just leaves like an awkward amount of time. So like you've got six months of that with like a little bit lingering at the end of the year. So I actually wanted to make changes to the mentorship program this year or for next year. So I decided to uh, launch and open in January so that the program can actually extend for a full 12 months. So um, by the time you hear this recording, it's going to be like midway through recruitment or it's an application process. So um, I'll be filling those spots, maybe even closed, actually. It'll, it should be closed by then. But um, it is a 12-month program this time around uh, for six months intensive learning and then six months of support because there's nothing worse than learning everything. And then by the time you actually start applying it, there's no support anymore and you're not really sure about what to do. So it's a 12 month program. So I'm so excited because 2024, I'll be spending um, time with the new mentees and watching them grow and develop and basically help me reach my goal of helping more women across the country or the world or whatever that might be, wherever they're from, um, have access to pelvic floor or pelvic health treatment that isn't traditionally like physiotherapy type treatment. So this is more like exercise interventions. So it's exciting. So 2024, it's also kicking off, kicking off with the mentorship, but I just feel like there's a lot of change for me um, in the back end of my business. I've got a couple of things that I'm wanting to do differently moving forward. So like the December period feels like this time of like slow down and get ready to have a relaxation time, but also like get prepared for the next year and be ready for so many different things. And really 
it's only like a week or two that you actually get to like do all of this. It's odd. It's an odd time of year because I feel like I'll leave things to the next year, but it's really only four weeks away or two weeks actually. <laughs> but anyway, hopefully you guys feel the same <laughs> and I'm not just alone in this. Um, but anyway, let's get stuck into today's research paper. We are if you're watching on YouTube. You'll see the paper here. We are covering an article that is titled Vaginismus, a component of a general defensive reaction, an investigation of pelvic floor muscle activity during exposure to emotion-inducing film experts, experts, excerpts, excerpts in women with and without vaginismus. So I really like this paper. I like all the papers I share with you. I only share with you the ones that I actually like um, or that I find easy to digest. Um, so hopefully you like it too. But for me, this really brings in like a different mechanism or system that is involved with pelvic health that might not be traditionally seen um, in the treatment protocol, shall we say, or like considerations when you're actually helping your clients. So um, first of all, let's start off with the definition of vaginismus, because this is obviously in relation to vaginismus or the, the subjects in the study had vaginismus, which um, if you don't know what that is, directly from the paper, is defined as an involuntary contraction of the muscles of the outer third of the vagina. The contraction interferes with coitus and occurs during attempts at penetration with, for example, a penis, finger, speculum, or menstrual tampon. So basically we have this like mechanism that comes into defense when something is going in for penetration. Um, problematic in a fair few women. So uh, you might have clients that have vaginismus. Maybe you don't know what it is, but they've mentioned it to you. So now you have a bit of an idea. But um, I want to talk about what like vaginistic reactions are. So where these are involuntary muscle contractions that are usually quite spastic in nature versus like that rhythmic muscle contraction pattern. And they're often associated with, with defense mechanisms. So this is usually in response to uh, perceived threat, or maybe they've become like learned reactions that have developed according to an experience that someone has been through. So this study in particular was conducted to investigate involuntary changes in the pelvic floor muscle activity in women that had vaginismus, but also in women that didn't have vaginismus. And it was to see whether or not vaginismus reactions occur as part of a general defense mechanism. So let's talk about what they did in the study. Now, um, in terms of the recruitment, the study participants were um, both re uh, referred, self-referred as well as referred clinically by a practitioner. And um, there were 45 subjects that had vaginismus and they were, I think only 30 something of them were actually diagnosed for memory. Yeah, 35 of the women in the vaginismus group, so 78%, had been diagnosed by a general practitioner or gynecologist, and they'd had a physical examination. So that diagnosis was on physical examination. So we've got um, 45 subjects in the vaginismus group, and then we have 32 control subjects that have no sexual or pelvic floor complaints at all. So just the average population. Lucky them. <laughs> now, what did they actually do? So they basically had four different film excerpts or clips, let's call them clips because I struggled to say the word excerpts, um, of different themes. So the themes were general threat. There was erotic in nature. 
There was a neutral film and there was also like sexual threat theme. So basically they exposed the subjects in the study to these varying film clips to see the reactions of, of them. Um, the pelvic floor was had muscle activity that was measured using vaginal surface electrodes. So they had like um, three different um, like points that they were measuring um, vaginally. And they also measured other defense mechanism or muscle groups, um, including the trapezius muscle group to assess whether or not the response was actually a general defense reaction. So let's see what's happening to all of these muscle groups. Now the study began with like a five minute relaxation period that was then followed by a 30 second baseline measure before they were shown that first clip. So they were getting like general baseline measures of the pelvic floor and tra trapezius and then also then shown those excerpts or the film clips. Um, they also, uh, baselines were also measured again before and after each film clip um, during like a two and a half minute, maybe basically like interval before like the next excerpt. So like obviously there was no like linger or they tried to reduce the amount of like lingering feelings that would then come into the next film. Um, so they had film, break, film, break, film, break type thing. Um, okay, so what else did they do? Participants were also questioned about their emotions during the films and they were asked to rate their level of threat as well as arousal. So two different scales or two different um, ratings, I guess you'd call them. Um, and they had to use a one to 10 scale. So one was being like no threat feeling or no sense of arousal. And 10 was like maximal feeling of threat and maximal feeling of arousal. So they had to rate that. They were also asked or questioned about the degree at which they um, paid attention to the film and also whether or not they had previously seen these excerpts. And there was actually like a little um, uh, report that they had basically tried to, um, here it says, subjects reported that they paid attention to the excerpts and had tried to identify themselves with the situation. So they tried to replicate like a real sense of threat or emotion that was being induced by these um, clips. So they did like good job, good on them. I think that would be hard, but at the same time, like obviously it's a study. Now, what did they find? Let's talk about what they found in this research paper. So there were no differences between the two groups, none, none, no differences. Women with vaginismus and without vaginismus responded the same to the stimulus, the same. The most muscle activity in the pelvic floor was seen in the general threatening excerpt, followed by the sexual threat. So um, general threat took the cake as being the most response and then sexual threat. And then it was only a small amount of activity occurring during the erotic clip and also the neutral clip. So the trapezius muscle group, interestingly enough, followed the exact same pattern of activity as the pelvic floor. So the results of this study are incredibly interesting when we're looking at the body's response to threat or emotion that's induced by visual threat or um, film, like that would shown these threatening images. So it, would, it was trying to replicate that feeling of threat, seeing like what the res response in the muscle groups were. Now, um, women with and without vaginismus have experienced the same involuntary pelvic floor muscle activity when they've been exposed to this threatening situation. So the fact that the threatening clip was the one that had the most response means that it wasn't the actual threat of sexual threat that was causing this problem but the idea or the scenario of threat 
itself that was actually problematic in a sense of inducing these muscle contractions. So we can like remove the fact that it had to just be only sexual. You know, if we're measuring um, pelvic floor response, we would probably associate that a lot more with that type of threat. However, we've just like picked up on these results have shown that general threat is actually superior in its response to pelvic floor activation or that um, response. So this is like incredibly useful information within the pelvic health world um, in numerous different ways. And I'm going to try and explain this. Um, the way I've I wrote this in the email, it took me ages to actually like put it into words because I like knew how I wanted to make it sound, but it was really hard. So um, hopefully this comes across right in the audio version of this. But um, if we're thinking about like how we can use this information, there's, a, there's four points that I, I think about when I'm like, applying or clinically using this one is that any threatening situation can result in the defensive mechanism of pelvic floor activity and it is not going to be isolated to sexual threat so we need to be mindful of things that are threatening to people that could be feeling or could induce feelings of threat so that could be work environments it could be relationships it could be home life it could be past lived experiences or traumatic events and it could also be things like maybe constant stress that can't be managed by somebody or any situation where one feels threatened so that could be how we perceive threat because one situation for someone isn't going to be the same response for someone else. Well, in the study, it actually showed that, but they were generally clips of threat. Whereas like a situation can feel threatening based on so many different past experiences. We know that we've talked about um, uh, those defense mechanisms are usually in response to a previous experience that are then learned reactions. So interestingly enough, it could be anything. So we, we need to keep this in mind when we're like, we're seeing people. Um, the second thing is that if the pelvic floor responds to emotions that are associated with threat, could constant exposure to threatening situations impact involuntary muscle contractions in the pelvic floor that might actually lead to long-term pelvic floor changes like tightness? So if we are, if someone is um, constantly in threat mode where they're like having these defense mechanisms of pelvic floor contraction over and over and over and over and over again can that create pelvic floor tightness in my experience yes um i see this in well i don't see the muscle contractions because i don't do internals but i have there's a lot of clients that i see that are very much uh ptsd anxiety um trauma-based clients. So, um, and they've got pelvic floor tightness and they're usually seeing me for pelvic floor tightness. They've sort of done all of the therapy around um, the mental health side of it. Um, but if that is the case, if these, if these, um, if this is the case and the pelvic floor can be induced with long-term changes, um, someone presenting with symptoms of tightness may see no changes with pelvic floor muscle retraining if the driver of the tightness is actually the threat and it is not being addressed. So if you are seeing clients for pelvic floor tightness and they're not getting any results through the prescription that you're doing, this is a pretty big red flag that there potentially is other underlying issues that might need to be explored. So this has come up before with me where I've had pelvic floor clients who are very tight. Um, we're doing all the retraining and they've not disclosed that they've actually been through a very traumatic event. Maybe they've got PTSD. Maybe there's like um, a history of trauma in their life that is actually feeding into their pelvic floor tightness. 
and we're not getting anywhere with the results. So it's sometimes a really good place to thing to keep in mind if people aren't talking about this with you and you're not seeing changes in their results. Um, it is something that is in fact, I mean, once you've built rapport with clients, that stuff sometimes comes out, but also you want to keep that in the back of your mind that it could be happening. And the third thing that we I like to think about is that clients actually, well, I don't, I don't typically see these clients because I do pelvic health, but I know that a lot of you listening are just practitioners that see a variety of clients. And sometimes those clients fall into like the mental health management category. So maybe they're suffering with chronic anxiety. Maybe they've got depression. Maybe they're like PTSD clients. Um, and they may actually have accompanying pelvic floor symptoms that they haven't really disclosed with you or talked about with you because um, they don't, one, they don't know the relationship and they don't think to tell you. Um, two, you might not actually be screening for it because they're not really seeing you for that. Um, but if you have the insight that this relationship between like um, emotion inducing scenarios and pelvic floor response, um, then maybe it's something that you can actually help them with that improves their quality of life. So typically some pelvic floor symptoms, especially around tightness, because this is all going to be around tightness, um, are like hip pain or low back pain or pelvic pain or abdominal distension and pain. Maybe they've got, I don't know, maybe they've got also got hernias or something like that. But these are typically unrecognized as pelvic floor related, especially if you're not well trained in this area. And if these clients have these problems, then if you understand pelvic floor treatment and rehab through exercise intervention, then you could actually do a lot for that client who's actually seeing you for maybe mental health, trauma, whatever it might be. You could almost like put them together and create like a really uh, varied program that's dealing with a lot of different things for them. Also, a lot of pelvic floor issues can become quite stressful for someone, even though they might not be seeing you for it. So like asking about it can sometimes give a sense of relief. And two, if you can help them cope with that, and maybe that's something that might be a barrier for them to go going outside could be like bladder issues or pelvic floor issues that are also adding layers to these problems. And you can help with that. It can maybe create a little bit more ease in their life as well. So have a think about clients that you might see with that and whether or not that could be something that you investigate with them or bring up or explain this type of research to them to give them a bit of insight into it and warm them up to the idea. And the last thing is, can we use this study, which I've just sort of touched on, to teach our clients that um, at times of threat or high threat or scenarios that maybe um, create that stress response or threat response, can can actually exacerbate pelvic floor symptoms of tightness. Um, so can we use this information to teach them that this is why your symptoms are flaring up? That's really empowering for clients when they're like going through these training regimes or retraining protocols and all of a sudden their symptoms are flaring and they're thinking that they're doing the exercises wrong or that the exercises are making it worse. And in reality, they've actually had um, like a, an event that's maybe brought about all of these feelings and emotions and their symptoms have exacerbated. So that's empowering, um, recognizing that pattern. The other thing is that can we actually use tools or prescribe strategies and help um, clients identify these times and then give them all of these activities or strategies or exercises or whatever it might be to actually 
downregulate the muscle activity in those muscle groups after that sort of um, threatening situation has passed in order to help with symptoms that might actually exacerbate. So I do this a lot with um, clients and we're working through like nervous system type work. We're working through like muscle regulation and we're working through like um, a lot of different things that help that particular client. So we workshop them together, find what works for them and then add them to like their management strategy. So this is like long-term management um, and understanding how to like go into the future and self-manage their symptoms. So those are the four things that um, I would say are the key takeaways from this particular paper. I think it is invaluable. And I also think that it is so important that pelvic health is, it's impacted by so many different body systems. We've got hormonal system. We've got the nervous system. We've got digestive health. We've got emotional response to things, which I guess is sort of nervous system as well. But all of these things really do feed into it. Just like not, it's not just musculoskeletal system, right? There's all these other things. And I think it's so cool that we can like learn all these little different systems and like how they all feed into it to like really understand what the client needs, especially in something that can actually be quite complex. Um, and the typical route of pelvic floor retraining isn't working or doesn't do enough for them. We need to like look at all these other things to like help the system cope. So I'm really excited about that. And I am actually going to tell you about this, even though it's not for everybody and no one, not everyone can access it, but I was lucky enough to be able to interview an old colleague of mine, Stuart, who um, has very extensive background in PTSD very complex clients and um, he does a lot of behavior management through exercise intervention but also um, has done so much training around the trauma space and he is actually he's sharing inside the mentorship a bonus lesson that is all about like the relationship that trauma has with pelvic health and he's going to give us strategies what we can do with our soft skills in our consults to help these clients as well so I'm so excited to be sharing that in the mentorship um, but I would also love to get him on the podcast to talk about this too, because I think his knowledge is incredibly valuable and it's something I haven't really seen in the exercise physiology space. So stay tuned for episodes on that. He doesn't know this yet. So if he's listening, be prepared, Stu. Um, but I think that it is really exciting to, I guess, collaborate with clinicians in their field of expertise and then share that knowledge with other people. So stay tuned. Um, but also, that's that gets me on to next year's topic of um, the podcast. I am hoping to get some more guests on here to do some other things that I don't know a lot about that I can um, share with you. So if you actually know anybody that has a lot of knowledge in a particular area, mostly around pelvic health, obviously, or women's health, or maybe just maybe just anything really, um, because I'd love to really broaden the knowledge that or um, the resources that are available in this podcast to you and anyone else who joins in the future. Um, please send me over an email or a message on my social media to um, anyone you think would be useful to have on here. Or, or if you are someone that loves talking about this and you have a bit of knowledge, don't be shy, reach out, let me know, because I'm going to put a schedule together, reaching out to everybody next year to do some interviews on here and share some other information. So exciting times ahead. I've got so much planned for next year with um, the education side or her education. So stay tuned. If you're on the email list, you're going to hear everything through email first. Make sure you're following my social media. But 
one thing that I don't normally, I ask at the end of every episode and I probably should ask at the beginning, but I would really appreciate if you could share this with people that you think would find this interesting because for me to continue growing or like sharing this content, it needs to be growing um, in order to, I guess, make sure that my time is being used in a valuable way and that people actually want to hear this. So if they don't, I'm not going to keep doing it. Um, So I would really appreciate that you share this. If it's on your Instagram stories, please tag me. If it's just sending links to people, um, if it's being part of my social media and then sharing that, I would really, really appreciate that. Um, I would love to be able to reach more clinicians, more health professionals in other industries as well, and really share this knowledge and make a really big impact in the women's health space in the sense of the education, but also being able to help more women globally access clinicians or providers that have knowledge in this that can really help them resolve their problems. So there's only one of me, there's multiple of you. So let's like do the best we can to make a change in the industry. Um, I'm really passionate about that if you can't tell. (laughs) Anyway, December, this is December. So this is going to be the last podcast drop for the year. Um, I will try to get some out in January. However, my guess would be one at the end because I'm going to take a couple of weeks off over the Christmas New Year period to just recharge and get ready for the new year. I mean, um, I just did just have a holiday, but why not have another two weeks? Um, But yes, if you, wherever you are, I hope that you're having a fabulous Christmas period, um, New Year break, and that you are also preparing for 2024, whatever that might look like for you. And um, yeah, have a great time. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being here. Appreciate you. And I will be in your ears or on your screen in 2024. Bye.